Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. David Summers hosting another Studcast with my buddy, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. So may I be the first to say Merry Christmas, Ron? We're getting close enough, right? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I hope everybody out there listening is going to have one, too. And we may be a couple of weeks away, but I guess it's still it's still appropriate. You know, and it's uh, been uh, nice that nice weather where I've been. And, uh, you know, uh, things are going well. And I uh, hope that's the uh, same thing for you and uh, Lou out there in San Francisco. And uh, we've got a good one for him today, I think. Uh, Dave, you wanted us uh, to jump right in there with me? Well, let's just get her cranked up, man. Let's see. Horses are all saddled up, so let's see what the heck we can do. Hey, I think uh, I think I'm good to go on that. Hey, let me mention this real quick though. TNStud.com is where you can start your Christmas shopping list for the ultimate wrestling fan. You can do that, but do it right away because if you order now. We think you'll make it in time to get whatever you ordered in your location for Christmas. Autograph photos of the stud, T-shirts in black and blue, autograph copies of Ron's new novel, Brutus, an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the continental and southeastern wrestling days, tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Order now. You're going to be cutting it close, and hopefully you'll get it in time for Christmas. All right, so I am ready to roll, ready to ride. I'm mounted up, and where are we headed to today, Ron? Well, for the first time, Dave, we're going to have a part two in, in the today's training, and uh, and I hope it's not like one time we had to do a part three. I think we're <laughs> going to finish this today, you know. <laughs> but I know we've 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 done that on occasion or two, but uh, we've never had a part two in a today's training. So we're going to basically continue with the decision I made. After having to fire my first wrestler uh, since I've been an owner of a wrestling company, and uh, that decision was to bring my brother home, basically, and to get the help and the support I needed. And uh, luckily, he was willing to uh, come back to Knoxville. And uh, we're going to dive one of those deep dives uh, into my brother and I, my relationship. And we're going to become, for the first time in 1976, Southeastern's going to have co-bookers. Mm. So it's going to be two of the Fuller boys are going to be handling the book in Southeastern wrestling. We're going to wrestle with the week of December 10th, 1976. Knoxville's matches we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about another one of those great TVs in a series of them at this point. And then we're going to talk about uh, the attendance uh, of that card on December 10th. And we'll talk a little bit about the payoffs for December 10. So we've got two great questions uh, today in our learning tree. And these are very appropriate. I've, I chose these questions because they're, they're, they fit with this time frame perfectly. And they're going to lead us into a fantastic upgrade of talent that's just beginning in the middle of December of 1976. And it's going to continue throughout that entire year of 1977. 1976 has been the best year yet for Southeastern, but it's absolutely nothing compared to what's going to happen in 77. 
So I think we're riding into another very good one today, Dave. So uh, I'm ready, my man, when you are. Well, I, I don't I don't think we've ever ridden into one that wasn't really good. All right, so Robert's back. Another great TV show, no doubt. And I can't wait to hear some of the new stars arriving soon. I am saddled up, Ron. My horse, Mr. Pickles, Mr. Pickles is ready to ride. Jeez, man, he sounds like a sour ride to me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so lightning's ready, too, though. So, so let's gallop into that part two of today's training. So right. last week, I talked about the difficulty of firing my first wrestler as an owner of Southeastern Wrestling. Boy, it was a really distasteful experience for me, and I decided to avoid it as much as possible in the future. So due to this, I made an extremely important decision as an owner, and that's basically what we're wearing again today is that owner had to, to hire an assistant booker. And uh, he's he's going to assist me not only with finishes, wrestler angles and programs and something I had very little of more time off. So, um, and maybe his most important responsibility was going to be to handle the firing of any wrestler in the future for Southeastern. So that booker was going to be one of the most trusted men in my life. And that was my brother, Robert, uh, to give everyone a better idea who I chose, why I chose my brother. Allow me to, to explain a little bit, Dave. I guess I need to, to tell people about it. Rob actually started wrestling full-time before I ever did. Uh, I was still in college, University of Miami, and he has already started his career. He started in the Georgia Territory in late 1969, and I'm not going to begin to wrestle full-time until I finish my last year at Miami, which is going to be uh, right at the start of the summer of 1970. Mm -hmm. Not only had we grown up together, Rob and I, but both of us, obviously had planned on becoming professional wrestlers all our lives. Uh, like all brothers in the early years, we had our problems. We weren't any different than anybody else. We had a lot of disputes, but they all ended about the time I headed off to Clemson University for my first year of college. I began to miss him uh, when I was away in college, and I could tell the he felt the same way when I came home, which wasn't too often, but occasionally I did get to come home from Clemson. We lived in Atlanta and visit. And he was spending a lot more time with my dad after I left for college. And dad, I guess, in some ways, he, he stepped in and he took my place. He kind of helped Rob handle the loss of his brother. And you had brothers. I know that, Dave. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really mm -hmm. uh, difficult when you're younger. Uh, you, you have problems that you don't have once you grow up. And uh, yeah. So, yeah. so this four-year period of, uh, that I spent in college, it just made us closer to each other. And then and we enjoyed each other's company more than we had earlier in life. And my father never spoiled me and Rob for money. And that's for darn sure. We worked hard on farms. We always or pretty much all the time lived on a farm somewhere so he could keep us busy. I think it was all just designed to make sure that we didn't get to sit and watch television or do what normal guys did. So, you know, from about the time we were seven or eight years old, he, he put us to work. And I remember back in the early days uh, when I was about seven or eight years old, we got paid. We got 25 cents a day, man. Wow. <laughs> well, now that yeah. could have been a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is 1958, but I don't think you're going to run that number up there. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 25. Yeah. You know, if we worked the seven day week like we normally did, you know, we'd, we'd make a buck 75 sometimes. Hey. You know? yeah. So, uh, so that figure didn't get much bigger, you know, all the way into my college days. It didn't seem like it. He certainly didn't give us any pay raises that were significant. But in my dad's defense, gosh, he was one of the hardest working guys I have ever seen. I mean, he'd work on the farm all day with us, man. And it was, it was hard work. And then he would, he would uh, leave late in the afternoon. He'd go home. He'd shower. He'd eat a little bit of something. He'd get in the car. He'd drive 200 miles or more. He'd wrestle. Then he'd get in the car and he'd drive 200 or more miles back home. He'd get home at one or two in the morning and he'd be knocking on the bedroom door at six or seven. You know, it's like, how does he do this? You know, and he's four hours. He sleeps four yeah. hours, three or four hours. What's going on? You know, and we'd go right back to work again. So we did that seven days a week. He really set an example for Rob and I about what hard work was all about. 
Mm-hmm. Even after I went to college, to get any money to spend while I was at Clemson or Miami, I had to earn it by God. <laughs> I had to go home. You know, sometimes I'd go home because I needed money and I'd just, I got to get to work. I got to go home and I'll work my butt off and I, I might get a few dollars to come back to them. So, uh, you know, during my last year in Miami, Rob started wrestling full time. And every time I came home after that, I came home so broke, man. And uh, and he would be there with money in his pocket and bragging about, you know, hey, I made such and such this week wrestling, man. Wow. I was like, whoa, yeah, that was that's my wow, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, geez, Rob, <laughs> you're rich, man. So, so it made it difficult for me in my last five months in Miami because, uh, Every time I talked to him, he was like, Ron, you know what I made last week? No. So when I came home after that last year in college, I was ready to begin my career, boy. I was ready no to go to work yeah. too, wrestling. Yeah. So Rob and I, we started off tag team partners in the summer of 1970, working in Georgia, in the Georgia territory. It, it was easier to start as a team, obviously, than it was to wrestle by yourself in single matches. That first summer of 1970, we were lucky because we got to ride on my, my dad's prior exposure, basically on his coattails. He had been Georgia heavyweight champion. He'd been Georgia tag champions with Ray Gunkel in the late 60s. You know, he had a big reputation there. And, and Wes being his sons, it, it was very helpful. It was a tremendous opportunity for us as youngsters. Be working most of the summer against one of the greatest tag teams of all time. That was the longtime Georgia tag team champions, the Assassins, Jody Hamilton and Tom Renesto. And we were working with them two, three times a week. Uh, and that break was one of the great benefits, obviously, of being a third generation wrestler. Our father, still being a big star in Georgia, occasionally we'd work in Atlanta on Friday nights as a six man tag. Then it was pretty popular matches. Wow. We actually, as young boys, helped to draw some crowds. Uh, you know, we really got a great, great start because of the way our dad took care of us and because of his reputation. So that summer, Rob and I bonded, basically. We spent a lot of time traveling on the road, obviously, and you've rode a lot of, in the wrestling business and cars, and we traveled together. And in the fall, uh, I left for the Florida Territory, fall of 1970. I decided I was going to go to Florida Territory. About the same time, Rob decided he was leaving Georgia Territory, and he went the opposite direction to Tennessee, in the Tennessee Territory. So over the next four years, he sometimes came into the Florida Territory, and he stayed for months sometimes uh, when he came. But we still didn't see much of each other because I was already living down there in West Palm Beach and, and running that town for the Tampa office. Rob was living in Tampa, where the Tampa office was located. So. We did win our first tag team belts as the Florida champions in 1973, but he, he kept returning to the Tennessee Territory and staying long periods of time. Uh, Tennessee Territory was type of two territories, kind of basically. It had Nick Goulis's half, which was the eastern side of the state, and then on the other side of the state was the Memphis Territory with Louisville, Kentucky, Evansville, Indiana, and some towns like that on the west side of the state. So I finally brought us back together and living in the same city for the first time since 1970 on July 25th, 1975. And I brought him back this time in my own territory in Southeastern Wrestling. Now he's there with me and Jimmy until almost a year later on July 23rd, almost exactly a year later of 76, Hmm. he lost a loser leave Southeastern match to Don Carson. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he'd already been talking to me about, you know, Ron, I'd like to go back and and do some time in Nashville again. And he enjoyed working for Nick Goulis, one of the few guys I know that did. And he enjoyed working for Jerry Jarrett. So he was being used by both of those territories. So So he left in July of 1976. And by by September, me and Jimmy, we used to sit and talk in the dressing room, and, and Jimmy was kind of like me. He said, I miss Rob. So so I kind of wanted to bring him back, but I couldn't do it at this point because he'd lost a lose-or-leave Southeastern match. So I had to put on my booger's hat, and I had to figure out a way 
that made sense for him to be able to come back after losing the loser leave so shortly uh, mm-hmm. earlier, only a couple of months earlier at that point, I guess. So I did that by creating a match that was probably a first ever. Don Carson had lost also a loser leave match to me about two months after Rob left, and he was gone too. So almost every territory in the country had loser leave matches. That was kind of the way they let talent go. It was the big win for whoever it was that got to stay and a big loss for those that had to leave. Uh, big match, one of, the, and most, one of the most important matches that you had back in those days. And I booked Rob. I says on this, I booked Rob on the Terry Funk Championship card in a match I called instead of a loser leave, it was the first ever loser returns match. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so Rob won over Carson on the Coliseum show. And in fact, it's a great thing he did because I got hurt on that Coliseum show. And Rob wouldn't have been able to come back and wrestle against Garvin, who is the guy that hurt me, obviously. But because Rob won that match, the loser returns match, he was able to work with Garvin that first week after that uh, big Coliseum show. And then he went back to Nashville for a few more weeks. And and then I had this nasty firing experience in which it really really pushed me to, to do something. So. I guess that brings us up to the present time frame and this where we are in this stud gas. And Rob's going to return to Knoxville full time on this card that's, that we're going to be talking about of December 10th, 1976 in this stud cast. He's not going to return just as a wrestler. He's also going to return as a booker. And we'll be discussing this card in a few minutes when we get to it. So we would begin, Rob and I, to work together for the first time an entirely new element of the business as co-bookers. It was going to allow me to get a much-needed break, which I had not had since October of 74 when I came to Knoxville and then created Southeastern Wrestling. And as co-bookers, Rob and I were going to set all-time records for East Tennessee Wrestling. In the coming year of 1977, we're going to draw the largest attendance at a sporting event ever in the Knoxville Coliseum, we're also going to make professional wrestling the second largest sports event in the Southeast, beaten only by the University of Tennessee's football team. So after my first two years of the owner of a territory, I had survived the Danny Hodge and Dale Lewis lawsuit, a divorce, my first firing of a wrestler, two major injuries in two years, and a titanic struggle to make a success out of my dream mm-hmm. to own territory. I'd become as successful as my father and my grandfather had before me in the greatest sport on earth. Wow. All right. So part two, I'm not surprised, but part two of today's training, just as good, if not better than last week's. It must have been great to work that closely with your brother, Robert, because it seems like the rivalry nowadays, when I think back, it's like, wow, they actually, they actually were close at one point in their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after... You know, after a few years, once I once I adopted that name, the Tennessee Stud, and once I got ready to leave wrestling mm-hmm. and get into hockey, uh, Rob wanted that name. Uh, you know, and right, and, uh, you know, uh, that's kind of where the the problems began again. Uh, uh, part of that was a work, obviously, but yeah. some parts of it were for real. Yeah, Rob really felt like. He was the real Tennessee studs. So it was, some of it was a shoot. So, uh, you know, it it became a contentious matter at the end of my career. Rob went on for a lot more years. But at the end of my career, it became a very contentious matter as to who was the real Tennessee stud. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of odd, man. (laughs) But, But we still always had a good relationship. Cool. Yeah, Dave, it was a real good relationship, uh, you know, and it'd be pretty much that way for the next 10 years. As a matter of fact, uh, during the next 10 years, we're going to build another Southeastern in Pensacola. Uh, We're going to turn that company into Continental Championship Wrestling. Uh, We're going to have great partners, Bob Armstrong, Jimmy Golden, Roy Lee Welch. So things are going to just keep getting better for the next 10 years from the point that we're talking about today. Wow. You were obviously doing something right. Success seemed to follow you everywhere you went, Ron. So, all right, where are we riding to next? What are we going to do now? 
Well, we're heading into mid-December 1976. We're going to discuss that card of December 10th, 1976, to be exact. So let's take a look at that card. There were three more Cadillac matches, obviously, to start the night. Uh, that's the way most of these Cadillac matches were. They were at the beginning of the evening. And uh, interest in the tournament was really taken off by this point. People were really talking about this car and what's going to happen uh, as we as this tournament continues to unfold. The first tournament match of that night was the new youngster, Rip Smith, tremendous young talent against uh, the old wily veteran of Louis Tillet and who uh, had been around for a long time. A second match, and, and Rip Smith had a great benefit to be able to work with a guy like Louis Tillet, and that's why these young guys became good so fast. There's another one in this second match, which is Don Carnoodle, who's going to go back to North Carolina and become a huge tag team star with Sergeant Slaughter. And uh, he's going to be in the ring with the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, who is well admired and respected by by knowledgeable wrestlers everywhere, man. Tor Tanaka's in the third Cadillac match of the night, and he's wrestling against that new gladiator, the heel gladiator, uh, Jim Dalton. So two great tag teams gonna going to be on this card. I would welcome back Rob, obviously. Uh, in a tag match, we're going to wrestle against Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John. Oh. First time I think Garvin and Big John have wrestled in a tag match. And in the main event, Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden, after their non-title win the week before in their first match ever against the Von Steigers, they're getting a shot at the Southeastern Tag Championship. And it's only the second time Kurt and Carl had lost a match since they arrived in Southeastern. This title match was going to be a special one. It's going to be two out of three falls. None of those around anymore. It's been years since they've had those type of matches. But fans really love those two out of three fall matches. Sounds like another big night in store for Southeastern fans. All right, I bet we're going to go back to the TV on Saturday, December 4th of 76, only six days before this Friday night card that you just described, right? Uh, but you got your calendar out again, Dave. I'm a genius. I'm just a genius. <laughs> you, you are date perfect, man, as usual. I mean, you have, you've got this down. So let's talk about that TV and how we're going to use that TV to promote this December 10th card. The TV is going to begin with a bang. You know, for those that missed last week's studcast, that show last week ended up with that 30-minute plus TV championship match between myself and the Southeastern champion, Ronnie Garvin. It was a tremendous match. I mean, it just it had those fans in that studio going crazy. And I'm darn sure that everybody's sitting watching at home and going crazy. It was the last TV show of the rating month of November 1976. And uh, three weeks after this TV, the WBIR TV station is going to receive that big old thick fall ratings book so that everybody was going to know exactly how many fans across the Southeast were watching wrestling shows during November. Mm-hmm. So, so this show, it's going to open with the last three minutes of that TV championship match from the week before, which was a just three minutes of burn, man. I mean, uh, the, everybody was going crazy there. And it was going to burst onto the screen, man, as soon as the the credits for the opening rolled. It, the first thing they're going to see is, uh, is Garvin and me uh, laying in the ring. We've both been just about slaughtered and uh, down and out. And all the wrestlers, a big studio full of wrestlers that's all crowded around the ring. Studio people are all on their feet. Uh, Everybody's going crazy. Uh, It's a great way to start a program. Uh, Then Garvin, uh, depending on which one of the dressing rooms you came from, those dressing rooms were basically empty. All the baby faces were around the ring. The heels were around the ring. Studio crowd, they were screaming so loud. The less stature, you couldn't hear the call of the match in the last three minutes. So with my victory in that match, Garvin got his first loss since arriving in Southeastern 12 weeks earlier. The crowd exploded, obviously. All those wrestlers and friends of mine at ringside, as soon as I got the win, man, they busted up in the ring. And, boy, we had a celebration. The <laughs> TV trophy was presented to me uh, just as Les was running. The show was running out of time. That's about the first time you could hear less than four or five minutes. 
And Les uh, says, you know, there's the new champion and we're out of time. And boom, we closed the show. That's the way this one opened. So it's got that big kick to it at the very beginning, which I really, really loved that. Great way to open a TV show. All that excitement going on in the first three minutes of video. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, obviously, this one led perfectly into this week's TV show. After that wild three minutes, the first shot on this TV was me and the, sitting there with that huge championship trophy in front of me on the set with Les. So this week's TV audience opened up with the same enthusiasm as the one a week before. It was crazy. Big, huge hand. They were into it. Having watched that three minutes, they were into it, just like the match was just finishing. And Les thanked everybody, obviously, for joining us at home and uh, and in the studio. And he congratulated me for the win. Nice little way that Les used to handle things. He really got fans uh, set down and into what was happening. He also announced that now there was a record uh, third time that I had been Southeastern TV champion. So I thanked him. and I told the fans how proud I was to be there and be their TV champion and to prove that fact. I told him that I'm going to defend the title today. I won it last week. I'm going to put it up today. And uh, so when I got up and left the set, I got a big, huge hand from the audience. Cheers from the audience, you know, turned immediately to booze, obviously, because Ronnie Garvin and his manager, Big Bad John, entered the studio for the first match on that TV show. And Garvin had always been really rough on his opponents on TV. We've talked about this, every one of these shows that he's worked on. Since he came to Southeastern, I mean, he's really been bad. But this time, it seems like after his loss the week before, he was absolutely brutal. <laughs> he pounded them. He, and he had a way of slapping guys, you know, and he liked to slap him across the chest. And he slapped and pounded this poor guy he was working with so hard that I think they could hear the blows in Nashville. Probably. Wow. You know, it was ridiculous. And, mm-hmm. you know, there there was no doubt if you watched the match, you could see how upset he was because he had lost the week before on TV. And he was out to prove it. It wasn't ever going to happen again. So, obviously, he jumped off the top rope on his opponent's throat again. But this time, he didn't do it just once. He jumped off twice in his throat. Wow. <laughs> once wasn't enough. And then he went up on the top rope again to do it again. And the referee got between him and the opponent who was laying there helpless on the mat. And he wouldn't allow it to happen. So Garvin had to crawl down off the top rope and cover the guy. (laughs) It's the only way the referee was going to let it happen. Mm. And the referee counted the body out. And and he was a lifeless body at that point. (laughs) And, uh, And he raised Ronnie's hand in victory. And then as the normal the thing went down uh, quite a bit, Garvin then grabbed the referee and he pulled him aside. And here came Big Bad John, entered the ring, and he grabbed that poor guy and threw him up over his back and put him in his hangman's hole. In the hangman. And when John finally dropped that poor guy, the referee signaled for the timekeeper to ring the bell again. You know, I was like, I'm thinking, whoa, what the hell is that all about? And then the referee reversed the decision. And he raised the unconscious opponent. The kid's laying there. He's totally out. He raised his hand in victory. He's laying there, but he's the winner. And the crowd kind of applauded that because, you know, uh, but it didn't make any difference to John and Garvin. So John just went ahead and prepared the body for hell anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And he crossed his arms over his chest. and uh, Boy, he, he and Garvin, they left the ring then to a roar of booze. By the time they left the ring, I think they had more heat than they ever had, man. It was really, really horrible what they had done. So, wow. And then they would go straight to the set with Les. And uh, during, the, you know, there's a commercial break at that point. And so they're sitting there. They're not talking. They're not conversing with Les at all, you know, while, the, while we're dark. You call that dark time when the commercials were running. But uh, they were waiting on that red light to come on the camera to tell them that it that they're back. And boy, as soon as that red light popped on their big bad John, he just never lets Les say a word. <laughs> Both he and Garvin were fired up. They were really, really in a, a nasty frame of mind. So he talked about things getting real dangerous for wrestlers around the Southeastern now. He said, now, now that uh, – 
that is animal Garvin. I think he called him an animal. Now that my animal Garvin here is, he hates to lose and, and <laughs> things are just going to go from bad to worse here in the Southeast. Uh, you know, as far as Garvin's opponents is concerned and my opponents, he threw himself into that mix. And he talked about how I made a huge mistake by involving my brother in this nightmare because, uh, you know, I brought him in now as my partner and I'm going to be against him and Garvin, uh, you know, and not a good time for you, Fuller, to do this. Cause, and by putting Big John, I think he said something about by putting me in the ring, you've made matters much worse for yourself. You know, because you were safe when I was out there on the floor, but now I'm going to be in there with you. You boys are, are going to get hurt. Uh, both you Fuller boys are going to get hurt. And then he jumped up from the set. Both he and Garvin, they were gone. Before Les could say a word, Les ended up with about 30 minutes of time, that he, 30 seconds of time that he just ended up discussing the card. And he, he didn't really know where to go with it after that. So... The TV's off to a pretty good start. I mean, uh, it's been pretty violent so far. And boy, that devastating heel parade, it's just going to continue right on with the next match because the next match is the Steigers, And uh, they just experienced a loss themselves the night before. So they probably, they went out there and acted like they had watched that Garvin match and they had decided, we're going to do the same thing, but worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they just, you know, and Les even picked up on the fact that, geez, you know, these guys usually do some wrestling, but boy, they are not wrestling today. They just pulverized their two opponents. And then they went to the set. They had the second interview, uh, just like uh, that Big John and uh, Garvin had in the first match. So Les, not, he didn't get to speak again. I mean, uh, he's not getting to say much on this show. I mean, the heels are really taking over here. These the two Germans they both commented on being champions wherever they had been and and remained undefeated always. And that way, you know, you always lose a match sooner or later. But mm-hmm. according to them, they they had pretty much been undefeated. And they talked about their loss the night before to Armstrong and Gola. And they called it a, a fluke win, you know. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a German word, you know, but Anyway, uh, everybody knows what a fluke wins. I mean, it's like an accident or, you know, it's a, it shouldn't have happened or whatever. So, so they said they had never encountered opponents using each other as weapons like those stupid <laughs> Americans had done last night. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because obviously Jimmy and Bob were, they had really worked out, man, their, their new move now. And Bob was just throwing Jimmy around like he was a dart man. It was, <laughs> it was, it was working for him. So, you know, they, they said only Americans uh, could do something as stupid as throwing each other. <laughs> so they called it a bad joke and, uh, and that the ugly Americans ought to be ashamed of that team. You know, I mean, they're, they're ridiculous. So this time they said it was a championship match and they had never lost that kind of a match. Well. They may be right about that. They hadn't lost the title before. It's the first time they lost the championship. And they they were uh, going to be dead set, obviously, to win their championship back. Uh, they they said that they're going to be ready this time for that ridiculous maneuver that the Americans used to beat them the night before. They intended <laughs> for the first time to bring their glorious German flag with them to the ring, by golly. Oh, they could bring it to celebrate their country, to celebrate their heritage and their victory that they're going to have next Friday night. So they ended up by saying that they would be done with this weak American team, and they'd be ready to move on to the next inferior team. So, <laughs> All right. I, I think you called it a heel parade earlier. It sounds like a pretty cruel TV show so far, Ron. It sounds like Garvin, Big Bad John, and the Von Steigers were extremely fired up in this one. I tell you what, this will be a good place for a break. Let's do that. Let's take a break. We'll come back with more in a moment right here. Don't leave. This Studcast will continue. 
Super Studcast number 35 is full of wrestling history. Questions come live from fans around the world. The first interactive Super Studcast gives us all the opportunity to see Ron tested for his knowledge of all aspects of the sport at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Four hours of education for all fans. The next Super Studcast number 36 part one has been recorded and ready for release on Tuesday, December 15th. The stud goes back close to where he was born to talk to a WWE Hall of Famer famous for his bird Coco Beware Coco spent time training with Ron's grandfather's brother Herb Welch this one covers many years territories, wrestlers and promoters part 2 is going to have Coco's PYT, pretty young thing tag partner and longtime friend of the stud Norvell Austin it's a great time of year to listen to more of the 34 award winning super studcast, simply go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast and find them all for only $2.99. Still the best deal in wrestling. Welcome back to another studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller and great news, Ron, about the next super studcast number 36. It's releasing on Tuesday, December 15th with WWE hall of famer Birdman Coco beware. That is going to be awesome. So looking forward to that on Super Studcast number 36. I'm sure you'll hear more about that very soon. All right. What is up next on this TV show, Ron? Let's get to it. Well, we're going to go back uh, to doing a personality profile that we always did. We had not done it the week before because we had that TV championship uh, match and we needed more time. I wanted to have make sure that we had plenty of time for that match last week. So we're going to into a personality profile, which was the normal format. And, uh, you know, this profile was going to be built, obviously, around the Cadillac tournament again. It had been several weeks since we'd updated the Cadillac tournament on air. So the huge tournament board was set up in Studio B and Les and Phil Rainey updated it live in front of the fans in the studio right beside it. They could see through the uh, separations and the openings built into the studios. They could see the less and the set and the, and the big board and the whole deal. And the, so Les and Phil Rainey, they kind of updated it right there in front of everybody. They put plus marks by the guys who had had wins since they updated the board. And they put some minuses by those who had losses. And several wrestlers had just one loss uh, away from elimination at this point. So uh, they, we're beginning to draw down the number of competitors in this Cadillac tournament. Uh, we'd also shot a special with Les during the week with the Cadillac. We sent him out to the Cadillac uh, dealership, and uh, we shot a, the interior of the car. We shot the exterior of the car again. Uh, Les was able to uh, just, uh, you know, drool over it, basically, <laughs> you know, about, wow, this car is gorgeous. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about the car, and I didn't want this car to get lost among all the other things that were happening in this time frame in Southeastern. The finals are honestly only 12 weeks away from this program right here. So the third segment's going to open up with Bob Armstrong and Jimmy Golden at the set with Les. Uh, they're going to watch the big win in the tag match from the night before where they had got a rare victory, being basically just about the first time the Vons Tigers had lost a match since coming to Southeastern. Uh, a lot of tension, obviously, was drawn to that most unusual tag move that they were doing now, and uh, and uh, it had won the match for them the night before. And actually, Bob picked up Jimmy Golden, and, and uh, he won both falls that way. He threw him feet first across the ring and uh, beat uh, <laughs> Kurt Von Steiger in the first fall, and, uh, and they took from Carl Von Steiger with the same move in the third fall. So fans love this new move. Boy, they responded to it just watching it on the video, just like they were seeing it on TV. Well, then Garvin and Armstrong went from the set right to the ring, and they were going to see it on TV. Again, they used that same maneuver, and again, they got a huge round of applause from the studio crowd. Uh, they were really over as a team within two weeks. Pretty amazing. They returned to the set for the third interview. And Bob Armstrong, having watched that Von Steiger interview that was done in the match 
right after the match before them. Boy, he Bob was always great at this. He really ripped into those guys. He answered their interview, which, uh, you know, uh, and only Bob could do it the way he did it. Uh, he was so good at the interviews. He, he started out by reminding the Germans that his and Jimmy's win the night before was about as big a fluke win as America beating the Germans in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> he started right out, man. Uh, he's going he's gonna to take it to him, you know. And then he says that his and Jimmy's use of each other's body as a weapon was definitely not stupid, as they called it. He said, the stupid wrestlers don't win matches, he said. And then he asked, which team won last night? Right. <laughs> the crowd popped on that one. <laughs> and then he just went on, man. He got on fire kind of like the Germans had been on fire in the in the match before. He continued. Oh, and he, he said the Germans claimed that they had never lost a championship match since coming to Southeastern. He said, well, you know. That's going to change since this, since this was the first time they'd ever wrestled against me and Jimmy, and we've <laughs> already beat them once, so we're going to take their belts this next one. So, uh, And then he says, you know, history proved the Germans' country had lost two world wars against so-called <laughs> stupid Americans. And he said, next Friday night, he said, I guarantee you, he says, this Marine talking about himself and Jimmy Golden, we're going to defeat some Germans again. So. And the crowd just kept popping, man. They were really into it. And then he finished her off. He said, uh, <laughs> I got some advice for you Germans. He says, don't bring out a flag to the ring with you that you promised that you were going to do. He says, unless you're prepared to go back to the dressing room with it stuck in a very uncomfortable place. <laughs> 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 Boy, that really exploded the crowd. <laughs> and he and Jimmy left the set, man, to a wild and crazy studio. They lit them up. It was beautiful. So last match of the show was next, and and I was going to be defending my newly won Southeastern TV championship against the great little Australian heel, Bill Dundee, from the Memphis Territory. And what a great little heel he was, man. Wow. And uh, we tore the house down in that match, and, and then I put the fuller leg lock on him at the end, and he was a smart dude, and he quickly gave up. Uh, he'd been in that before, him and his George Barnes, his friend from Australia. They had felt that hole many times in 1974 when I was over there working in Memphis a lot. So when this happened, though, and he gave up, I was still on my back, uh, and I'm still in that toehold with him. And, and your legs are kind of wrapped together when you got the toehold on, and it leaves me really defenseless. And uh, at that point, just as soon as they rang the bell before I could untangle my legs and get to my feet, Garvin and Big Bad John hit the ring. Mm-hmm. So everybody in the studio was on their feet instantly. Boy, the crowd reacted like, wow, this is terrible. And it was bad. John stomped me in the face again with his size 20 boots. That's twice in two weeks that I'd tasted the bottom of his boot, man. And uh, then Garvin knocked the referee down as he was having them ring the bell because, you know, now he's going to disqualify. He's going to do whatever he can do to get this stopped. So Garvin jerked me up, and he put me in a full Nelson. And uh, and then Big Bad John came over the top rope. He was able to step over the top rope. He's a tall guy. And, uh, and he took off one of his boots, and he was about to charge across the ring and blast me with it. And suddenly, old Rob, who hadn't been seen on TV in months, uh-huh. Uh, he appeared from out of nowhere, and uh, he nailed old Big Bad John from behind, and he picked up the boot after John dropped it. John, John didn't expect it. He got nailed. He dropped the boot. Rob got his hands on it. So Garvin turned me loose, boy, and him and John, they hit the floor. So Rob and I go after him. We, we got the boot, and, uh, and they pretty quickly uh, deserted and uh, took their exit from the studio. And it was going crazy in the building at that point. The fans were really, really into it. They wanted to see us get them with the boot. So we went straight to the set for the last interview of the show. And uh, Rob still had Big John's boot. And he started the interview. He said something about, you know, we were expecting something was going to happen in this TV match today. You know, that we were going to get involved and something bad was they were Garvin and them were going to do their best to try to take care of me or my brother for sure. Not knowing I was here, he said, that's why he, he stayed out of sight all day long. He said, nobody knew that I was here. 
So he said, now we got a weapon here that's courtesy of a dumbass Texan. <laughs> I think he called him an ass. He said, we got a, look, Ron, we got a little weapon here courtesy of that old dumbass Texan. And we're going to bring it to the ring with us next Friday night. And we're going to use it on both of those guys. So, you know, Rob got a nice pop. And so I took it from there. I told Rob he wasn't aware because I hadn't been here. He hadn't been here in a while. But we're not really wrestling against two men next Friday, Rob. I said, but we're only wrestling against one and a half. And he goes, well, how do you figure that, Ron? I said, because Garvin's a guy in trouble. He said, because, because Big Fat John, I didn't call him bad anymore. I called him fat. <laughs> I said, well, Big Fat John, <laughs> you know, he's such a coward. He got a yellow streak jacket back. He's probably going to leave Garvin in there with both of us. <laughs> so uh, then I grabbed the boot away from Rob, and I slammed it on the desk, heel first. That boots popped like a gun went off in the studio. And I just, I rolled with it. I said, you know, big fat John, you've slammed this boot in my face and I've tasted it for two out of the last three weeks. So come Friday night, we're bringing this boot to the ring with us. And I guarantee both you and Garvin are not only going to taste it, but you're both going to choke on it because I intend to shove it down your throats. <laughs> Crowd popped again. So I just kept it rolling. I continued, you know, I said, Garvin, you know what it's like not to be able to swallow just like I did after you jumped off the top rope in my throat that you're going to find out. So get ready for a fight. You know, I told him, I said, uh, we're a family that that we've been fighting for generations. <laughs> I said, you are going to find out Friday night why the Fuller Welch name is so feared in the South. <laughs> you know, I said, so come on down Friday night, boys. And taste a little bit of hell, I said. <laughs> and I finished it off with a big old slam of that boot heel on the desk again. All right. And that's where the show ended, right? Yep. That was wow. that was basically the end of the program. Uh, Les is going to close it out after that. But but we ended it with all those pops on the end. No doubt. That's, that's, that's a heck of a way to end the show, Ron. All right. These Southeastern TV shows just sound pretty incredible. This one was not even in rating period. And, and sounded pretty awesome. Here's the deal. I think it's going to be cool when the November rating book comes in. Then that's only a, probably a couple of weeks away. I don't know. How, how far down the line is that? Yeah, it's going to come in toward the end of, uh, the end of uh, December. It's about a 30-day process for them to put the numbers together. So about two weeks after this show, that book's going to be available. And uh, we'll talk about it. Once that book arrives, uh, we'll be talking about that in the next couple of stuff. Okay. Good deal. All right. What's next? Well, we're going to get the results of that card. Six days later on December 10th, uh, Don Carnoodle beat the great Mephisto uh, in his first of three Cadillac tournament matches. The great Mephisto is just about to be leaving Southeastern. He's got one more week, basically. Rip Smith, he got a win over Louis Tillette. Tillette's going to be leaving Southeastern pretty soon. Tor Tanaka got the victory over the new gladiator, Jim Dalton, uh, which wasn't very tough for Tanaka to do. And uh, Rob and I won. We pinned Big Bad John, and it was Garvin that left Big John. It was a little bit different match. You know? <laughs> they had a little bit different ending than what I told Rob it might have. Yeah. And the Southeastern Tag Championship changed hands. Just like Bob predicted, Armstrong and Golden won the belts from the Von Steigers. Wow. Uh, and it was a tremendous match. I watched some of it. It went almost an hour. It was a two out of three fall match. And uh, they won both their falls, like I talked about earlier, with that. They called it now. They had a name for it. Uh, Jimmy and, uh, and Bob says, Ron, we're going to call it the shooting dropkick. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, so, so I said, okay, boys, that, that's a good name for it. So the shooting, so they, they yeah. walked away with the Southeastern Championship. And, uh, you know, you can only imagine that Von Steiger's uh, how upset these boys are going to get. Oh, no doubt. All right. What was the attendance? And then what were the payoffs, Ron? Well, it was uh, just under 4,000 fans. Uh, it was about uh, 200 fans uh, short of another uh, legitimate sellout. You know, it was the building was full almost uh, like it had been every Friday since that Coliseum show in October. The building was just not small enough, and uh, it was a shame. We probably turned away thousands and thousands of fans over that uh, four, five, six-week period after that Coliseum show. 
And speaking of the Coliseum, we're only two weeks away from returning there for the entire winter of 1977. So uh, look out, Southeastern. Business is going to explode in that big old Coliseum. Wow. The average ticket price is just under about four bucks at this point. Uh, you know, and that 4,000 people, that's about a $16,000 gross gate. And uh, it was December. And I increased the boys' payoff from the normal 28% to 30%. I like to I like to give a little bonus. It was like a little bonus uh, to at Christmas time. And guys' payoffs went up a little bit. And they all were appreciated it because it was a hard time for everybody, you know, with Christmas. And uh, the payroll for that night was just under $5,000. Uh, six guys in the referee got uh, about 200 bucks, And nine guys uh, out of that group got a $400 payoff. So uh, it was some big money. Don't have the exact figure of it, but I would anticipate it was five times or, you know, it seems like it's a lot more than five times as much. Uh, wow, when yeah. I hear these numbers, uh, I don't have the exact figure for this, but it was $400, making $400 in the second week of December in wrestling was pretty darn amazing. I don't care where you were in the United States or in the world. Uh, it's a tough month, uh, December. And when guys are making that kind of money, they're going home with big smiles on their faces. Oh, no doubt. 400 bucks in one night back then. That probably, I think you're right. I think that's probably close to 2000 or $2,500 in today's money. But that, yeah, that, that that's a cool way to send them off into the holidays. Not a bad night's money for that day and time. Absolutely. All right. So I think it's time to get that cold drink. We'll have a seat under the learning tree. Remind us again about the questions and who asked this week. Uh, this week's uh, learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Mark Hoyle. And uh, Mark asked, uh, now that you have talent calling you, which is was the case, definitely. How did you incorporate the new guys with the existing talent? And how did you decide who would and wouldn't work? So these are great questions, and, and they're perfectly related to what's happening during this time frame because I'm changing talent. There's a massive amount of changes in the talent uh, over this next three months. Between this match on December 10th and uh, three months down the road, this is going to be a totally new territory when you start looking at the guys that are in the crew. And one of those changes is going to be a superstar babyface change, and it already happened, basically. It actually happened the week before, and obviously we're talking about the one and only Bob Armstrong. He was back for good, and he had just arrived back. And uh, I got another one that just arrived back, uh, which was my brother, and it was yeah. his first time back. So we got two new babyfaces right there that's coming back full-time in the crew. A third babyface who had really gotten over before an injury in that southeastern slaughter angle of June the 4th, 1976, he had been gone for six months. It had been almost six months to the day since he was injured on that June the 4th, 1976 match. The original gladiator, Dick Steinborn, is going to be coming back. Another young superstar babyface is coming. And I'd worked with this guy in the Florida Territory years before. His father who had been a star all over the country for many, many years. Uh, this young superstar talent, he's going to get over as a babyface when he comes to Southeastern, but he's really going to make his mark as a heel there uh, mm. during the next three years in Southeastern. He's going to be there for a while, and that's Bob Orton Jr. Wow. And, uh, okay. He's soon going to call Southeastern his home. Mm. So let's introduce some new heels since we're talking about uh, changes in talent that are headed to Southeastern over the next three months. The first one. Like Bob Armstrong, he was a tried-and-true international name, proven to be a star, and literally a money-making machine in wrestling, and that was the Mongolian Stomper. And he's going to be making his debut on Sunday afternoon, January 2nd, just about two weeks ahead of this program in the Knoxville Coliseum. And at this point in early December, uh, we're only three weeks from that debut, and uh, I had no manager for him. Now, you know, I got the stomper, but I don't have a manager yet. And I'm searching and desperately at this point for the perfect guy. I want to have just exactly the right guy. You know, stomper was certainly no average talent. 
in the future. He's going to be a superstar in Southeastern. I knew it was going to happen, and he deserved to have the best manager possible. And I'm going to soon find him. And when I do, these two guys as a team are going to take Southeastern wrestling to the next level. The next heel that's coming in is another young star like Bob Orton Jr. in the Florida Territory with me years earlier. And this wrestler is considered at this point in time and for the rest of his career as one of the most dangerous men in the business, man. And uh, he's a young guy at this point, but they, everybody fears this dude. You don't want to make him mad. And he, just the opposite of Bob Orton Jr., he's going to arrive in Southeastern as a heel, but he's going to turn it around and make himself a bigger name as a babyface years down the road. He's going to be in Southeastern for a long time. I'm talking about Dick Slater. There's only, uh, you know, there was one more heel coming back who had been a star since the day he showed up in Southeastern. He hadn't been been, uh, here in Southeastern since the last day of July in 1976. He's going to return as an entirely new man. In fact, you know, this time when he comes to Southeastern, he's going to have a new name. He's going to be the self-proclaimed junkyard dog Norvell Austin's coming back. So, so now we got the names of seven new additions to the to the early crew in 1977. And the eighth one is obviously going to be Stomper's manager, and we're going to be adding his name to the list soon. So uh, let's answer the first of Mr. Hoyle's two questions that related to these wrestlers. He asked, how was I going to incorporate the new guys with my existing talent? Well, Mr. Hoyle, it's actually pretty simple. I mean, the the great thing about wrestlers, especially the really good wrestlers, was the fact that they learned quickly how to fit into a booker's plans and into a territory's crew. And uh, most great great workers had worked several territories in their early years. They watched the experienced pros. They learned that you had to let the booker decide where he wanted to put you on the card. And the smart ones knew not to rock the boat or they they got thrown overboard if they rocked the boat. There was a lot of lessons you learned, and it was pretty simple to to acclimate them into your crew. The talent level in Southeastern was growing at this point at an astounding rate. Uh, You can just tell by these seven people I just introduced. And uh, the guys that were leaving, you got to let, and you got to Mephisto, and you've got some other guys. Obviously, Dalton is leaving. You've got guys. The crew is really jumping up and at a great pace and, uh, and a great level. Uh, the, and the better the wrestlers that you have, the easier it became to book them. You know, great wrestlers can work with anybody, and they have great matches with anybody. So I was on the way as a booker to finding out that Southeastern crews are going to get stronger and stronger for years in the future, uh, mm-hmm. simply because – I'm getting better talent, and I'm being able to keep those talent. So let's get to Mr. Hoyle's last question. And that question was, how did I decide who would and who wouldn't work in my crews? And that, again, another simple answer. Uh, eventually, almost every wrestler in the crew is going to be main eventers uh, for me. You know, they all realize that fact. Once, you know, once they get here, and uh, a couple of years down the road, all through Southeastern and Pensacola, the Continental Days, uh, the crew is full of all main eventers. They all realized that, that fact, too, when they looked around the dressing room at the other guys sitting there. Mm-hmm. They were like, wow, <laughs> look, we're all down. There's, everybody in this room's a great worker. Yeah. So, you wow. know, so they also knew that, uh, you know, because wrestlers talk to each other about their payoffs, they also knew that, uh, you know, everybody's money is about the same. And that was the major difference between Southeastern, what we were doing and what most other territories were doing back in those days. Uh, most territories had some top guys, a few key guys at the top of the card, and an underneath card. And uh, in those territories, those guys that were on top, they made the big money. They got mm-hmm. all the large payoffs. And uh, obviously, they were always happy. But those underneath wrestlers that were on those early matches, they knew they weren't making the money. The guys on tops were. And they knew that they probably weren't going to get to the top. They weren't going to get to that big money. 
And that fact always caused problems in dressing rooms in territories, other territories. Uh, Southeastern talent, as time went on, became all-stars with all of them making just about the same money. And when that happened, you got all great wrestlers. They all making the same money. It stopped any jealousy that was going on in the dressing room or any doubt that you had about your ability in the ring and how you're going to get paid. So, Mr. Hoyle, uh, I don't have to decide who would or wouldn't work in those crews uh, because they all fit perfectly in the crew. I mean, when they're all great workers, they they know how to fit into the crew. And as time went by, my wrestlers are going to all be great. They're going to be interchangeable from a main event one week to working on the opening match the next week. And they're going to be entirely comfortable with what they're getting paid. You know, and I heard it said a whole lot of times from wrestlers that had worked for me. And sometimes I heard it said from guys that had never worked for me that they heard that Southeastern and Continental had their reputation of having the best dressing room atmosphere anywhere in wrestling. Wow. I was always proud of that. Yeah. You know, that's a, that was a great compliment. And I never had to look for wrestlers after these first two years that I've that we're just finishing up in Knoxville here. I never had to look for wrestlers anymore after that. The searching, the day of searching for stars for me was over. The great ones found us at Southeastern after that. Oh, oh, no doubt. And, and it just made for a better night at the Coliseum or wherever you guys were performing because the first match was not a couple of job boys. I mean, you had, you had really talented athletes right from the opening bell. And very important. And uh, that's a huge difference between a lot of territories. A lot of them wanted to open them up with these young boys or with people Mm -hmm. that just couldn't have a great match. I remember so many nights in which there was a big roar in the first match as there was in the main event. (laughs) And there was roars all night long. The pops, I call them, were all night long. You you would get uh, 15, 20 pops in in a night's worth of matches. And uh, it was just, it was tremendous. What we were doing was exceptional and it was different than everybody else. That is awesome. All right, Stud, you know it. You've done it again. Another historic one recorded for posterity. And all of us are looking forward to next week. On Facebook, there are two sites, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, and author Ron Fuller Welch. Just like and follow Ron there and automatically become friends with a legend on Twitter and Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch on both of those super stud cast number 35 and 34 other super stud cast available also at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash stud all three or more hours and only two ninety nine. The next one, number 36 is coming Tuesday, December 15th. This one is going to be good. It's a hall of famer. From the WWE, the Birdman, Coco Beware. All right, that's going to be pretty awesome. So where are we riding to next week, Ron? Well, next week, our today's training is going to focus on the beginning of Southeastern's charitable giving back program. Uh, We're going to, uh, because we've had such huge success, because we have been so accepted by people in that part of the country, we're going to do our first of uh, what we're going to make uh, a lot more charitable uh, things that we do throughout the community. We're going to become a bigger part of the Southeast uh, in the entire community. Uh, we're going to have the first of many events next week. We're going to make contributions to charitable causes throughout 1977, 78, 79, in so many different ways. So as we get closer to Christmas in 1976, the focus next week is going to be on December 17th. 1976 card. We'll talk about the TV, the attendance, like we did today. And uh, we've got another great learning tree next week. We're going to talk about wrestling bears in next week's question. Somebody's asked about wrestling bears. And uh, and I believe my grandfather, Roy Welch, trained the very first one of those. And um, certainly looking forward to that. So, and I want to thank everybody, obviously, for listening today. And I, and I welcome all the new listeners on their first ride with us. And I know there's a lot of them out there. We're getting a lot of new people every week. And if you enjoy what we do here, please tell somebody about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with being able to tell your friends about 
turning them on to something that's good. So take care of yourselves, obviously, and others, and uh, may God bless us all. God bless you too, Stud. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us and reminding you Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 